Welcome to the Disaster Tough Podcast, where we talk about emergency management by emergency managers. We share stories, lessons, and tips to help keep you moving forward. I am John Scardina, the host. I share my experience as a former federal emergency response official who's responded to some of the most extreme disasters over the past decade. I now lead a private emergency management firm called Doberman Emergency Management that focuses on emergency planning, mitigation, and response. This podcast is brought to you by L3 Harris. L3 Harris is an amazing company. They provide communications for first responders all over the world. They created the Beyond Push to Talk app that allows your team to communicate between mobile devices and radios through encrypted lines, which makes it so much easier for the team. Even better, they are offering the Beyond app at no cost to agencies for a limited time. You have to check it out. L3Harris.com slash responder support or click on the show notes for details. Welcome back to the show, everybody. It's your host, John Scardina. Man, 25th episode. We're in October now. Oh, wow. There's just so much going on. We have really good people coming on on, on the show later this month. And so we wanted to kick it off by just talking about all the current events that are happening right now to, to form that scope. And I couldn't think of a better shirt or more appropriate shirt to wear than um, my Icons shirt, the all-hazard shirt that has fires, floods, cyber, uh, you know, cyber attack, um, well, you know, there's all kinds of things uh, on the shirt, all the, all the different kind of hazards. And after watching the debate on Tuesday, I thought maybe we should add a dumpster fire <laughs> to, to, to the shirt. Uh, there's just a lot happening in the U.S. right now, and uh, the election is, uh, you know, adding another complexity. Um, w- you know, President Trump, as of today, I think, it, or no, last night, last night we found out um, President Trump and the First Lady Melania, um, they have COVID. Uh, they were tested pavia, uh, positive, and they are um, in Walter Reed now in, in, in quarantine. Uh, so that's happening. We're dealing with uh, the inmate problem now. And when I say inmate problem, there was a highly unpopular idea that said, hey, let's take the people who are serving time because there could possibly be an outbreak in uh, in your facility, which doesn't make a lot of sense, by the way, because they're not interacting with the general public. But let's release them out, out into the public. And um, so that decision was made. And in one county alone here in California, I found this out from NPR today. Over, a, I'm reading this now. Over a hundred of the 300 inmates released for coronavirus have already been picked up for com, uh, committing new felonies, including attempted murder, domestic violence, and armed robbery. That's in one county alone. By the way, I believe it was which county was it? Yuba County, Yolo County. Yolo County decided not to follow that that idea and, and kept everybody in, in uh, the prisons. And guess what? No cases. So that's happening. We could talk about that if we really wanted to. I'll probably avoid that. Uh, we have, again, wildfires happening. 6.7 million acres burned in the U.S. Uh, we'll, we'll be hitting on that quite a bit. In fact, we have been um, the last week or two. Um Remember when I said the Ides of October? Yep. Uh, 
I said, forget the Ides of March. You're going to have the Ides of October, uh, talking about um, the middle of October being a, a problem with the pandemic. And that's apparently lining up very well with the election. And uh, who knew, right? So that's pretty ironic. Uh, we're also now dealing with uh, the reopening phases, and that's great. That means that cases are going down, but again, Ides of October, so uh, let's talk about that a little bit later. And then, of course, my favorite holiday is at the end of October, Halloween, and I'm thinking about implications of public health there. Uh, it's kind of, we'll talk about this later, but man, my, my son, Alan, He's the cutest freaking kid on the planet. And uh, he got great genes from his mom and beautiful eyes from me, so you're welcome, kid. But, uh, you know, he was a pumpkin last year. He's a year and a half, right? So he's a pumpkin last year. We were thinking about what is our family going to do. My wife's eight months pregnant, and uh, we're really excited for it and, you know, to, to do the whole family thing. And, you know, of course, we have, now we have to worry about the pandemic. So at the end of this episode, when we kind of go through all those different hazards that we're going to be talking about, I, I came up with this idea, and I am very proud of it. I don't know how creative I am, and quite frankly, compared to my wife, I'm not even in the same ballpark, but I came up with an idea that emergency managers can present to communities and for their own families to make uh, Halloween awesome and uh, normal, in, in a sense. And so make sure that uh, you, you hear that idea, and if you like it, uh, please, you know, uh, continue um, or, or promote it. Uh, you can claim it as your own idea. I don't even care. I just want people to to have fun that day in a, in a healthy way. And so we'll be finishing the, the podcast on that way, but um, in, in that uh, direction. Uh, but again, there's just so much we could talk about today. Uh, I just don't have time. I mean, there's uh, between every major uh, incident and, uh, potential incidents that could happen, civil unrest and otherwise, uh, what what do we want to hit on? So I decided to form the podcast in, um, in the context of uh, after actions and what I'm calling in the moment after actions. Now, the, the, the word after um, elicits, you know, this idea that we don't even uh, address um, the reporting until after the incident, right? That kind of makes sense in your head. You're like, after action, okay, so um, we can do the interviews and we can do the, the lessons learned and all that once we're done with the incident. Highly experienced emergency managers know that we need to do in the moment after actions and um, that changes uh, all of our outcomes, and it makes the reporting process much, much better, the investigation process even. So what do I mean by um, uh, in the moment after actions? Now, I'll go through several incidents of what we're going to be talking about today, probably mostly wildfires and uh, reopening, that kind of stuff. Um, but I really want to help you understand what I mean by that. So uh, an af in the moment after action is basically saying in emergency management, we don't follow the idea that you take a decision and you rock and you throw it out into um, the water and you watch the ripple effect, right? That's not what we want. And if you wait till after the incident to, to conduct your after actions, then that's what you're going to get. You're going to see all these ripple effects and 
you, you, you basically try to throw, you know, mud on the wall or, or dirt, you know, you're not a dart uh, on the wall and see where it sticks. And that's not what we want. Okay. Um, so what, what we'd rather have is a, is a slightly better analogy in the decision-making process. It should be more of a journey, right? So as you're going down a path, you say, oh, hey, I haven't gone down this path before. This doesn't look like it's going in the right direction. You look at your compass you, and you start to self-correct, right? And um, that's what we want to do. We want to do self-corrections and we want to do confirmations because that gives you confidence to keep moving forward, right? Which is what we want to do. That's how we become disaster tough, um, to, to make the best decision at the best moment and be the most prepared that you can, Right. Um, so the way I wanted to help illustrate this was through two, um, through, through two processes. Okay. One explaining it through the, the lens of the general public. So as you're, as you're helping others who do not have an understanding of after action reports that they can start realizing that they kind of already do it, but that as they become cognitive of it, they can be, make better decisions um, ro- moving forward. And, uh, then I want to give the emergency management perspective of doing that because it's a much larger context and, um, applying it to your jobs. Okay. Um, so the, the general public perspective, how are they conducting in the moment after actions? So everybody goes to the grocery store, right? Um, that's something we can all understand. So you go to the grocery store and uh, you're looking at what you need to get. So you get some steak and then you go to the vegetables and the fruits aisle and you get tomatoes and you get cucumbers and you get cabbage. And then you get, get some fruit, you get some bananas and oranges, kiwis, whatever. You have a pretty big shopping cart and uh, you're, you're looking at everything you have. And you say, great. And you check out, you go home and um, your incident has started. Okay. Uh, the incident is hunger, right? Feed me. Right. Um, and so you get home and it's a couple hours later, it's dinner time. And you look at your recipe box and you say, oh, I want to make fajitas. And then you realize this is in the moment after action. Now, in the moment you say, oh, shoot, I didn't buy chicken, peppers, onions, cheese, tortillas, uh, guacamole, salsa, whatever. You didn't buy all the ingredients. And. Uh, now you have to do a course correction because when you wanted to feed yourself with a, a recipe that you don't have, you have to ma- make a change. And so the, the most logical thing to do is obviously not to look at another random recipe and then see hopefully you have those ingredients. What, what you do is you look at your ingredients and say, from these ingredients, what can I do? Right? And that's what emergency managers have to do all the time. From, from what the resources that I have, what can I do? And that might become from a lack of planning. Um, we often say that a lack of planning on your part doesn't create an emergency on my part. And that is true for indi- individual decision-making. But in a disaster, if I walk into a community or I, I enter a community, I'm trying to help them in, an, in a large-scale event. If they didn't prepare, I still have to work with the resources I have, right? Um, so anyways, continuing down this, this path of decision-making, you then make your dinner and, uh, you make a, another mental note, right? 
say, oh, okay, so if I want fajitas, if I want to, to have these meals, the next time I go to the grocery store, I should look at the recipes that I want first and then look at the ingredients I need to buy. That's super logical. That, that happens every day. And um, that is the after action process. So you go to the store the next time you have your list, you buy all the uh, ingredients you need. And now you're in this confirmation mode because I, I have all the right ingredients. I pull up my, uh, you know, my recipe and I can make, make my food. And that is a very small scale, but that that's what people do. And so we want people to, as they're moving forward with their decision-making of, of some, some incident or some, something that they have to, to decide on that they don't have to think I only have one decision here that, that they make multiple decisions and they can course correct. That's a, that's important to think about as we're talking about reopening, as we're going to be talking about some of these disasters. Okay. Um, you're going to have to work with community partners and that's a big theme of today. So from an emergency management perspective, um, how do you, how do you do after action reporting, uh, in the moment after action reporting? And, uh, what I would suggest is the, or the, the easiest example that I can provide is, um, considering arson in a wildfire. It is wildfire season. It's what everybody's thinking about right now. And if I waited until after fire season to figure out if there was arson, that's a huge problem because you could have mitigated a lot of wildfires. There was 200 wildfires started. 80% of them were man-made, which is standard for California. Oh, and more than half of those were intentional, right? Versus that first fire gets, you know, the, the initial onset of the, the fire begins. It, it spreads. It moves out of the area. Fire investigators then go in there immediately and say, hey, this was intentional, uh, and then they start uh, involving law enforcement and they start doing all these things where they're able to prevent future incidents by finding the individual or individuals that potentially cause that arson. Now, that's not, those numbers aren't uh, the, the half of the fires thing. That's, that's not happening. But you understand the context, right? You need to be able to make decisions um, and, and to a course correct so that you can mitigate future threats. It also happens on an individual level in the decision-making process. When we make a big decision, before we go too far down that road, it is very, very important to think why we made that decision. Um, again, going back to maybe that general public idea, if I was going to buy stock, you know, work on my finances, personal finances, I don't think I would go and just click on the very first stock I saw online. Hey, it pulls up the stocks. I click on the first one, done. That seems irresponsible, right? That doesn't happen. What more likely happens is that you call a financial advisor or you do, you know, a quite a bit of research on the trends of a company, where they're headed, some of the projects they're working on, and then you might purchase stock, right? Um, that would be a logical decision versus maybe an emotional decision. So I've sat down with emergency managers before some of my staff and said, Hey, like, let's walk this through, like the decisions that you're making right now in this incident. And what I find is that those who are able to kind of step back and say, Hey, like I did a little bit of research, 
and the data is saying that we should do X, Y, and Z. So I did it. And then um, sometimes you only have minutes for that, by the way. Um, and you have to course cor correct as you're, as you're moving forward. The disasters is moving that fast. Uh, versus, you know, someone who is passionate about helping people or other feelings, you know, uh, other feelings get involved as well. And when, when we realize that we, we are, we're emotional people and that's okay. But, uh, putting that in check for an emergency management standpoint is incredibly important. And so we just want to always be tough, right? We, we want to be able to, to say anytime, anywhere, any disaster, that we're going to address that and, and we're going to, to keep moving forward. We take gray skies and turn them into blue skies, right? And the best way to do that is not to wait uh, for these big decisions just to play out, but have uh, have people and, and do that, that kind of course correction as you're moving on. Um, those who wait in disaster obviously lose. Um, and so that's what I would think of for an emergency management uh, perspective. So applying that course corrections um, methodology in the after, you know, after actions, in the moment after actions, I'm going to be talking about a, a few different incidents, not incidents rather, but um, threats. So we're in wildfire season. We've already brought that up. Um, one big thing is uh, obviously we're in wildfire season. So everybody thinks of like the U.S. fires. But if I think of 2020 wildfires, you think you had to think of the brush fires in Australia, right? There was what 47 million acres burned in Australia. That's a lot of land. To put that into context, if I took my 6.7 million acres in the U.S., it would completely cover all of New York City and some. Okay, so that's 6.7. So almost seven times that, roughly seven times that. I mean, that's just that's just huge. Um, and so like you have to think about like the actions they were that the, the the cause of that, what was perpetuating that, um, you know, the loss of life. There, I I believe that there was thirty three people. Um, who perished in those fires, 2,500 homes roughly. Um, but just, they had just had so much land that was burned, um, uh, ecological impact for sure. Um, so side note, by the way, if I'm going to be talking about wildfires in Australia, I got to call out my guys, um, Juan and Kyron out there with mere mortals podcast in Australia. Uh, I like listening to them. We like listening to here in the States. We're just, uh, say shout out to those guys. Hope you're doing well. And, uh, it's fire season down there for you guys too. So just stay safe. And, um, for my listeners, Hey, check them out. Um, but I, I told him I would give them a shout out. And so, uh, from my Instagram channel, disaster tough podcast. So fulfilling that one, hope you guys are doing good again. We like what you, you have to offer. Um, Anyways, going back to the fires and uh, thinking about some of those after actions and how California wildfires, 80% of California wildfires are man-made, whether it's a, you know, a car accident or utilities or fireworks, gender reveal, um, and very rarely, of course, arson. There's lots of different ways um, that it happens. But I'm not going to wait until next fire season to tell people to 
create um, a defensive perimeter around their home. Now that's emergency management language for clear your um, debris, your foliage. Wow. Um, foliage, foliage, foliage. There we go. Um, to clear that out and to, to really, um, to, to make it a space for firefighters to get in there. And what I would say is that if a fire truck can get in there and there's still plenty of space between the, the brush or the, the forest to the home, then you're, um, then you're in the right, right, right train of thought there. Um, firefighters, as Jason Clapp talked about in his episode, uh, they have to triage. Now we didn't talk about triage specifically, but triage, the, the idea of triage is that you save the most amount of people in the least amount of time. And in triage, you have green, yellow, red, and black. Black is dead. Green is alive. So it goes on that path. So my job is, again, to save the most amount of people in the least amount of time. So I'm actually going to start with the healthiest and work my way down because I don't want cascading events. I don't want somebody who's a yellow to become a red because I've taken a lot of time to focus on that red. Um, I want to make sure that the that everybody else is stable first and move my way down. And that happens with fires as well. If a firefighter comes up to a neighborhood and uh, several homes to the left have not cleaned out the debris and there's just tons of dead leaves, dead trees, dead everything out there, they know that it's inevitable that the, the fire is going to catch it. That will take a lot of time to try to clear that out. Versus homes on the right, you know, they, um, oh my gosh, did I do right before? I can't remember. The guys on the other side of the street, right? If they, if they're, if they're, their lawns are cleaned up, if there's plenty of green space, if they do develop that defensive perimeter for wildfires, then it is much more likely that they'll be able to save those homes. And so they're going to focus their attention on stopping the fire on that, on that direction because they have more space to work in there and they can probably get into to save more homes that way. So as an emergency manager working with communities, I would say that messaging is extremely important right now, um, especially as people are aware of it. I would uh, not wait. Like October 2nd, do not wait. We're now getting to the height of fire season. Wildfires are going to keep burning. This is what we've been seeing so far is not what we're going to get, right? There's going to be a lot more. So what are you going to do to, to help people out? Um, and uh, my thought on the after action piece is that um, now that we're in the incident, now that we're in wildfire season is to, to really focus on that public messaging and evacuation. Even the things that people don't normally think about, like, pulling the drapes away from the windows if there's a, a warning for an evacuation and uh, um, like couches and uh, other furniture that can catch fire um, quickly, right? So we want to we get those away from the windows and we want to um, clean our perimeters, clear the gutter, gutters, that kind of stuff now so the fire comes up, hopefully they can stop it. I shared a story, uh, I think it was epi actually episode one, um, we had a, a grand total of, I think, 10 listeners there. So, I mean, talk about an explosion. But um, in that episode, I talked about coming up to Coffee Park in Santa Rosa. And the entire neighborhood was completely wiped out. It looked like a nuke had gone off. It was, it was the most crazy thing I'd ever seen to that point. And I had seen a lot of disasters. 
I'd never seen anything like a wildfire go through a neighborhood. And not in, not in person, at least. Like, literally car engine blocks had melted under the car and solidified on the road. It was like some kind of weird artwork, like you'd see in a painting. Um, and so, like, going through this neighborhood, it really stood out to me that this one home looked completely fine. The entire, ho- entire neighborhood was completely burned down except for one home. And I was talking to some of the National Guard and the firefighters that were out there. And uh, I was asking about the home, like, what, what made that home different? And from their best estimate at the time, they could tell that uh, the homeowner, as he was rushing out of his house, probably at like 3 o'clock in the morning, but rushing out of his house, uh, threw the hose and sprinkler on, on top of his roof. Now, as I've explained before, wildfires often burn from top down, not left to right. Because um, the first homes that are caught are caught because the um, the ambers um, embers hitting uh, hitting the roofs and actually burning the, the roof down, and then it catches up to the neighborhood, and then you have this massive problem. So uh, good on that homeowner for that. Um, building codes actually mean a lot. Um, you're talking about changing your 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 decision making process and upgrading. Uh, building codes are super boring for people, but you know what? They save homes. They save infrastructure. So Arizona putting the uh, the regulation in, in place um, to, to require commercial grade sprinklers on top of roofs, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, let's see, what else? So we talked about wildfires and kind of what, what we're dealing with now and maybe some of the course corrections like uh, telling more people and helping people mitigate uh, in fact, actually, if you're going to be talking about evacuations, I cannot say this enough. Uh, yes, it is a pitch for the company. Get over it. DobermanEMG.com uh, forward slash preparedness. We have a family emergency plan that was developed in-house based off of all these disasters we've been to of like what you really need to have in that plan. So get it. It's super cheap. Um, we, we basically made it as free as we could. Um, and we want to, uh, be able to help people out. And so I think it's like two bucks or something, but it will give you everything you absolutely need, uh, to record. And so that's really important. Um, based off a template, right? Um, we also do, it is free. We also put it together a list of things you'd want to have in, in your basic emergency kit. So, uh, feel free to use that on us. Um, and, and spread the word, like help people get ready for wildfires or really any kind of a major disaster. They're going to have big mudslides after this too, right? Um, okay, let's talk about, let's switch over to some of the man, man-made stuff or at least some of the other stuff that we have to worry about now. Um, reopening schools. Uh, reopening is a, is a fascinating thing to think about because we do want to reopen. And it provides a particular conundrum, uh, unique issue, because, again, we do want to reopen. We want to see those cases go down, but we are optimally, uh, uh, we are, um, we are uh, cautious. That's the word I'm looking for. We are very cautious um, about, about what's going to happen because... In March, I was talking about the Ides of October. Ides meaning 15th. The 15th of October. What does that mean? 
And um, man, the data is lining up pretty much exactly as as predicted. So there would be ebbs and flows, but basically you'd see a general wave of data and that, that, that data would go down, that wave would go down at, you know, around October, which happened. And then the two weeks, there would be two, a two week period, um, that they would start reopening. Right. So on, uh, September 30th, Sacramento County sent out a notice saying they're entering into phase two because lower cases, because the last two weeks were, were better. And that's great news that it's better. Um, but they said in two more weeks, if it, again, it's this low, we are going to enter into phase three and phase three is a big deal because it's opening schools. Again, we want to open schools. We want to return to normal, but we also want to get rid of the cancer, right? Like if, if you don't get rid of all the cancer, the cancer come back. The same thing I think of like the community with a pandemic I know there's this huge push and like, oh, you know, we've already had like a couple weeks, but, but it, it does come back. And, um, I'm cautious because you look at the 30th of September and they say, Hey, in about two weeks, roughly two weeks from now, 14, 15 days from now, we are going to enter into phase three and reopen the schools. And that comes up like right around what October 15th as predicted. So you're going to start to see schools open up and after action thinking here right now, if we don't course correct on an emergency management side, I'm not talking about closing things down. I'm talking, what do you do with the resources you have in that moment? Right? So if you open up schools, the most logical answer is that of course there will be an insurgence of COVID cases. So how do you protect against that? I would say stress very, very strongly to the parents and educators that it is all about telling the children, getting the children on board. Now that might seem obvious, but you have a case study that you've never had in the U.S. before. All these kids are doing school from home for an extended period of time. And there's a lot of kids, to my bet, that don't like that that want to be in gym, that want to do the art stuff, that want to like get out there and, and have fun and see friends. And I would bet that a lot of those kids, if you say, hey, like we have to go back to online school if you don't take this seriously, that sounds like the worst to parents. It sounds like the worst to kids, even educators. And so like using the the parents and the ed- the, the educators, the admins, to help the kids, you know, age appropriate messaging to get them on board is really, really important. It's also going to be really important to realize that school districts, their budgets are going to have to go through the roof for sanitizing everything. They're going to have to sanitize before the classes, during the classes, even after at night, all those kinds of different stuff. And so there's, there's going to have to be a big push. That's how you stop the second wave. When you start to reopen things, you still take it really, really seriously. You follow all the CDC recommendations. You wear a mask. You, you do um, you do social distancing. And um, for those people who roll their eyes at those ideas, I, I once had this. Actually, well, not once. It was like two, two or three days ago. I had this genius who, uh, man, he was like, well, only a sixth of only 10% uh, 
of cases die from actually COVID. And he's like, I don't really trust anything from CDC. And I was like, dude, in a wildfire, if somebody died in a wildfire, you're going to say, well, that might have been a heart attack. So, like, that's just the most ridiculous. Like, I can't even, I don't know. Um, what can I say, though? I'm, I'm working long hours and disasters, and we have uh, those people out there. But, hey, again, a lot of people aren't educated and don't understand epidemiology or public health, and um, they're just they're frustrated, and so I get that. So I do... I'm trying to backtrack a little bit, as you noticed. Um, try to be nice, but be smart. Listen to the professionals, right? Um, okay. Don't be stupid. Uh, okay. Let's look at this next one. Oh, so businesses. Uh, businesses are much more better prepared uh, to deal with reopening than uh, schools, especially big businesses. And what I will say is, instead of doing a course correction now, I would say a confirmation. A lot of those big businesses who said, hey, we're not even going to consider going back to work um, in person until uh, summer of 2020, until summer of 2021. That's exactly right. That's what you want. Uh, and so uh, that that's that's what we've been saying. 2021, summer 2021, things are going to be a lot different. Hopefully there'll be a vaccine that has uh, gone through a large portion of the population and uh, we can um, start to return to a new normal or, or create a new normal. Um, personally, I would love for masks to continue for flu seasons. And for those who are like, oh, what about my rights and my freedom? Yeah, I get that, dude. But, like, don't you want to have more personal privacy? I love the idea of masks, personal privacy. And I don't like people breathing on me. So it's a win-win. Um, okay. Let's talk about those medium and size companies, though, because small companies, I'm a small company. Uh, it's industry dependent, you know, like you, you, you're not going to move your restaurant to your home, right? I, I think I just invented the food truck there. Um, like there's, there's all, it's, it's tough for them, right? Um, I would say those medium uh, and small companies that are service based, man. I, I have been saying this for months. You need a continuity of operations plan. You have to have something in writing that's, um, you know, your legal document signed off. Um, and what I mean by that, let's say you have a pool company. And I don't know, you have 120 pools. Okay. If you get COVID and you're a small business and you don't show up to 120 pools for a couple weeks or longer with uh, with no communication because at this point you're, you possibly could be fighting for your life. Uh, hopefully you're, you get back to business, the whole deal. But like during that period, you could lose a lot of customers, right? And so the easiest thing to do is to talk to someone in your network, in your, um, in your industry, again, talking about pools and say, Hey, you do pools. I do pools. If I get COVID, you'll cover for me and vice versa. And it can be as simple as that. Right. And, as long as it's in writing and they, the cost, you know, cost is understood and covered and there's, um, you know, delegations provided to, to get back to normal and to who's going to work under those uh, delegations of authority during, um, during a, an outage, right, a, a work outage, then you, you're, you're covered. But if you don't have that, um, you could be in trouble. 
So uh, as we reopen, and again, we're looking possibly at the second wave and uh, big companies prepared, small companies, medium companies got to get that coup plan. Um, nursing homes. And I wasn't going to talk about healthcare too much. Healthcare is doing phenomenal and uh, I don't want to call them out too much, but uh, nursing homes, the last three years in California alone, if he's, they've seen major regulations come through emergency preparedness. If you have a small nursing home, you have to team up with other people in your network. If you only have one van or a couple vans and you have to get 40 people out from a, from an incident like a fire or a hurricane, whatever, uh, you need to be able to get those people out in a safe manner so that can that coup plan um, just from observations. Uh, another observation, again, in the moment after action reporting, uh, the the election is becoming so passionate on both sides, and um, there are there are a lot of people who um, y- you can look at this the world over. Anywhere you go in the world, uh, when politics becomes highly passionate, you have the possibility of creating extremists. That's just the reality. And I'm not saying one party or the other party. That's not a political statement. That's just a factual statement, right? You can, you can, um, 99% of the people could be fine and you could have one evil dude or, or one small group, um, just go way overboard and they could do something. Um, and so uh, from a safety and security standpoint, as we're talking about reopening and people getting into the public more, are we talking about, are we addressing, um, again, active shooter training that we provide? You know, lots of people provide emergency, you know, we provide it to emergency managers and agencies and schools, for example, Doberman does. But are you talking about active shooter awareness? Are you talking about civil unrest? Um, there could be riots based off of who wins and who doesn't win or if there's no answer. And... There could be pr- peaceful protests and peaceful, peaceful protests. Like that's great. Like you can get out there, do your thing. But again, in a COVID environment, there's risks associated with that as well. And, um, um, emergency managers don't think about politics, right? We don't care. I don't care at all what any pol- politician says about, you know, protests or not. If people are protesting, then I have to cons- I have to make those considerations from a public health standpoint and work my with my public health officials to do um, to uh, to address that and keep everybody safe, um, whether they're a part of law enforcement or um, they're protesting or whatever. Um, so something to think about there. I, I would think about um, extremist events and how to mitigate those events. Um, I would also work with community groups to kind of keep everybody on like a, you can be passionate as much as you want, whatever, but uh, keeping that in check too, right? Um, Understanding um, really what it means. I will say though, um, even though I don't really care for the public statement of of politicians are going to do their thing, whatever, uh, I will say that as an emergency manager, you work with, uh, politicians so much. So when you're having those closed doors meetings, making sure that you understand their needs and, um, recognize that as an emergency manager, you are not the influencer. I don't care. I've never seen a PIO 
a public information officer have a million followers on Twitter. Like they always get create their, their, their Twitter accounts, which is fun, whatever. But most of the people who follow PIOs are like industry people. Right. And, uh, that serves a purpose. It serves a purpose for pure information because everybody wants to stay political. So here's just the information. It is the politician, however, who can really influence public and, um, to understand that, to be able to work with them and, um, do course corrections with them as well is highly important. Uh, and so like that covers like the, the basis of like some of the, the more intense stuff. So, what is this idea that I presented at the beginning of the episode? I made you wait, what, 40 minutes for it? Um, Halloween. Halloween is coming up. And like I said, my son was a pumpkin last year. Freaking cutest kid on the planet. Those baby blue eyes, just like his dad. He makes me proud every day. Um, Halloween's my favorite holiday. So thinking about how to, to keep it a fun holiday... And, and do the, the social distancing and everything else that we should be doing um, for, a, or for a COVID environment type of uh, event, especially thinking there might be a, a second wave here. Um, I started thinking, okay, just follow me here. It's down the rabbit hole. It is not very emergency management centric, but it is great for public health. And as an emergency manager, you can reach out to the community so we can really influence people here. We have a month to do it. I'm saying it's time to address the rabbit in the room. No, not the elephant, the rabbit. Every year we do an Easter egg hunt. An Easter egg hunt. Holiday aside, the Easter egg hunt makes no actual sense whatsoever. Right? We know it comes from some pagan whatever, but... Uh, an, a bunny looking for eggs, they're herbivores. That doesn't make any sense. You know what makes a lot of sense, though? A graveyard treasure hunt. Uh, that sounded way lame when the way I said it. A Halloween hunt. Oh, that sounded better. A Halloween hunt. Yes, I'm talking about converting the Easter egg hunt and to do to do a Halloween hunt to finally make it right. Because that makes a lot more sense. You know, you, you, you put the hide the candy in, uh, in crevices and crevices, uh, in boxes and under the couch and all these different areas like you would do for an Easter egg hunt, but you can call it a graveyard hunt. Okay, that sounds cool too. Graveyard hunt. Um, there, there's this possibility here where you could dress up your kid. You might even walk around the neighborhood so everybody can see the outfits but in terms of like candy, like the, the latest idea I heard was, um, I've heard two ideas. One was, Hey, let's, let's put bowls of candy out in front of the houses so they don't have to interact with people. Oh, good. You're trying to not do community spread just in case somebody has COVID in the house, but you want a hundred different hands, little, little hands going to a bowl of candy. That sounds like a terrible idea. So, Nope. Uh, the next idea was like drive-bys. That sounds like a shooting. Uh, like to do a drive-through, drive as like a zombie park or something where people would come up and put bags of can and put candy in the bags. Well, then you still have the workers who are interacting with, uh, you know, 
a thousand cars. So that's not doing it. So what you can do is do what they do on Easter, right? There, there are still community events, of course. I understand that. But it is one person uh, or, or one family unit doing uh, a graveyard hunt in their yard or uh, in their house where the kids are dressed up and they're going around and they're looking for the candy. It's a lot of fun. And, um, you know, parents may be jumping out and scaring them or whatever um, in, in a fun way. Uh, th- that's That sounds like a good idea to me. I'm not the most creative guy in the world. My wife's probably listening to this right now. Um, in fact, I'm going to, like, hey, you should listen to this episode. Uh, but I, I think it's a good idea. She might be shaking her head, but, oh, no. No, 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 no. Uh, I just realized that my wife about a week ago, oh, this is embarrassing. My, I should stop recording. Whatever. My, my wife a week ago said, hey, instead of doing the bowl, we should put little bags, individual bags out on the, the lawn for kids to come and pick up. So she did. Okay, so we're power couple. She thought of the idea of spreading out the candy. I thought of the idea of making a graveyard. But again, if it's it's a family-based thing, that's like the, the most uh, logical thing you could do to, to still have a fun event. It would be really tough to do it on a community level. Yeah, this is a Disaster Tough podcast, and we're talking about Halloween hunt. That's fine. Uh, if you don't like the idea, whatever. Um, yeah. You could possibly, if the kids are old enough, you could possibly do it by, um, you could like do it in a park with other families if the kids knew what candy to grab. For example, if they're all in like green, green little bags with your, your family name on it or something and they had to go out there and try to find it. That'd be one, one idea. But even with like a community event, I don't see for foresee kids picking up and dropping candy, right? Like once they pick it up, it's it's in the bag. So you could potentially limit instead of lots of people spreading out candy, you could have a you know a big bag and just throw out the bag that you never actually touch the candy in the bag. Again, I'm talking about wrapped candy, uh, of course. And you know when the kid picks it up, wash their hands, and you might be able to mitigate that way as well. But again. Halloween hunt, the day of knocking on doors and grabbing bowls of candy. Uh, as much as I loved it growing up, I mean, I really did love it. And I was excited for my son. I think there's better ways to do it now and, uh, much safer. Also really random. I grew up thinking like every open piece of candy was going to have like a razor blade in it. Like who has all the time to put razor blades in candy, right? I always thought that was kind of ridiculous. Uh, who's doing that? Um, anyways, keep people safe. It was trying to kind of a fun idea that we had, um, trying to, to help out. So if if you like that idea, please tell your community about it, get families on board to, to do their own little graveyard Halloween hunt. And, um, if you like some of those suggestions of it, it made you think about emergency preparedness and how to reach out to community and what's happening right now. Um, please, please, please let us know. Um, you can let us know through, of course, we, we prefer that, uh, or we would, um, like that five-star rating and subscribe because we work really hard on these and we like the feedback, but you can also do uh, a couple other things. You can, uh, if you want to work with us, 
uh, right? If you want to, if you have a project or you have um, a quiet comment that you want to send, you can send us an email at info at dobermanemg.com. But uh, we've been pushing really hard on our uh, disaster tough Instagram page, as I've mentioned. So if you like this episode, you have, you have good comments on it. You, you, you want to, uh, for, uh, want us to talk more about a certain topic, please reach out to us at uh, disaster tough podcast. Again, that's the disaster tough podcast on Instagram and we'll be back next week. Thanks. Thanks.